So this afternoon we're going to expand a little bit further into the heart side of this chitta, trying to cultivate qualities. So we're going to work specifically with compassion, the cultivation of compassion, and actually also the cultivation of appreciation. So we're going to do we're going to do both. And so that when we, you know, spending, spending much of the morning looking at the, the mental state side of chitta, this recognizing the mind's tendencies, the psychological forces of, of trying to grab at something or push something, push against something, uh, and just trying to recognize that that is happening. Is that happening right now or is that not happening right now? And, you know, you see, you see both. It's not always doing that. Doing that a lot, not always doing that. So in the space, but the space between, we find um, we have built up a momentum, perhaps of some presence, just a sense of being here, and also a sense of ease of being here, being okay to be here, good enough to be here, and then watching the state of the mind, the experience the appearance of that experience, how does, how does uh, this moment appear to me? And looking at the, um, the activity, the behavior of the mind, the mind's behavioral aspect, what is it doing? And again, trying to, so hard, but trying to <clears throat> look at the mind's behavior, the state and the attitude without thinking that I'm somehow responsible or at fault for what my mind does. It's really hard for us to do that, I think. And uh, we, get <clears throat> we get caught in this abstract self-view of I'm a person who does this. Why do I do this? I shouldn't do this. I'm not supposed to do this. I always do this. How come I always do this? I'm a person who always does this. <laughs> so frustrating. So, the, uh, so in, in any given moment of experience, the way that we would talk about karma, the way that the Buddha talks about karma, is in, in a timeline, a sequence of events, is that in, in certain moments we're, we're in the receptive, we're receiving something. So there's a resultant, sometimes it's called in Abhidharma, the resultant. This moment is a result of the billions and billions of moments that have happened previous to this one. And if I've had this habit of grabbing, waiting, reaching for so many times, sometimes the moment it results in that experience arising. So again, completely not your fault at all. It's just the momentum of the mind. Or the recipient, the resultant moment. The result of this moment is a little bit of pain and fear, and I'm kind of pushing against that. That's the result. That's the karmic fruit in this particular context. Trying to just watch that, to be aware of that, to recognize that. And then there's the space between that. There's the kind of absent state where we know we're not, not much is happening. Maybe the neutral state, we would call that the neither state. Neither pleasant nor unpleasant. I'm not grabbing, I'm not dropping, I'm not reaching for, I'm not pushing away. Then we have to be careful we don't get bored. We can actually, it's so easy to ruin a state that's quite pleasant or easeful. Start looking for chaos. <clears throat> causing trouble. Right? 
I do that so much, it's crazy. Like, I feel pretty good right now, and it starts some trouble. I'm getting, it's going, <laughs> there we go again. What's going on over there? It's been a while. Some new material to work with. <laughs> Four million channels of confusion and fear and chaos to look at. Just gonna sit here and be at ease. <laughs> so boring. And then the emotional component, which is really, I think, where the Brahma Viharas probably fit best, is that there, there, there's an emotion and there's a sense of an activation, is that we're trying to activate or cultivate some type of an emotional quality. My teacher, my first teacher, Stephen Smith, calls these this, the beautiful spiritual emotions. And the Buddha, in his awakening, talks about them as being the cultivation of human excellence these qualities, these emotional embodied qualities of kindness, of compassion, appreciation, and equanimity. He placed them on such an important aspect of his practice that he even would use this term Brahma-vihara to the other people in his time and place who didn't ascribe his way of thinking. He goes, oh, you mean, when you say you're dwelling with, with Brahma or God, you actually mean... If that's what you want to do, if that's the goal here, then you have to cultivate these kind of qualities of heart. So the Buddha likes to steal ideas, and he must have really, really pissed off a lot of people back then, I think. Because he's like, that's not what that means, it means this. And he's always redefining terms. So there's a way in which we, um, we can learn to use mindfulness <clears throat> an awareness to see the presence of these kind of states, these mental states or these mental attitudes, and we can watch those, and you've been watching that, and you know that's very important to see that. But then there's also the, the now we can activate chitta in a way that's more, more heart, so we can see that we can um, access and cultivate a quality of something like compassion. And that's, you know, a possibility, it's an idea, it's a concept. We've all had experiences of compassion either on the receiving end or on the giving end. We, we, we know that it's certainly there, but we might find that we don't have access to it as much as we might like. And to some degree that's just a, a result of the, the fact that we haven't really cultivated it so much. We haven't put a lot of time into trying to... <coughs> excuse me trying to bring that out. And it's not something that we need to practice or cultivate in every moment where something like sati and, sati and metta, mindfulness and kindness, is something that could be cultivated and established and could be useful in every moment. It's always useful to be aware, to pay attention. It's always useful and beneficial for yourself and others to have this sense of kindness and friendliness. But you don't need to be compassionate all the time. Compassion is not like that. Compassion has a very specific aim. And compassion is aimed towards uh, pain and suffering and sorrow and sadness and difficulty and the more challenging aspects of our experience, the pain and the fear. And instead of resisting and pushing that away, we can actually hold and care for that experience. And that's the better strategy, we can do that. That's 
the awakened state of mind and heart. It's like, oh, I see this. I care about this. This is hard. And so it's, a, it's appropriate in those moments. So if we can <clears throat> start to recognize the mental state or the quality of experience that might be beneficial, then we can call that up. So it's still metta. It's not like the metta goes away and the compassion comes in. The metta is still there. The kindness is still there, but it takes on another quality. It transforms into another experience of compassion. So we have to be able to recognize and identify that. So they're all metta practices. Sometimes it can be confusing the terminology. And so metta can take that on. So we'll work on trying to develop that. And so that when we look at the world or we look at equanimity, we look at what's often called 10,000 joys, 10,000 sorrows, that life, part of equanimity is recognizing that life is a, is a mixed bag of both of those. There's joy and there's sorrow, there's pleasure and there's pain, there's gain and there's loss, there's, there's polarity in the universe. There's no one set way, things aren't a certain way. There's a whole wide range of conditions and circumstances and experiences that we have. It's not, it's not that things are a certain way. There's no, things aren't a certain way. Things are constantly changing and we find ourselves in different conditions and complex situations all the time. So we need to have, we need to be resourced in that same way if that's the way it is. And so compassion is, is useful and appropriate and necessary in those kinds of times. <clears throat> Likewise with appreciation. To recognize with gratitude this word mudita, which is the hardest of the Brahmaviharas to translate. It's often translated in strange ways. Sometimes I used to hear it as sympathetic joy, which I have no, no idea what that means. It sounds a bit slightly condescending to me. really maybe empathetic joy. Um, really, to me, I, I, maybe it's part of my conditioning or the way I think about things, but to me it just seems like gratitude. To be grateful for that which is good. And most, most people wouldn't argue with gratitude as a quality. It's a more colloquial way of saying it, I think. I would never say empathetic joy outside of a Buddhist context. But I would use the word gratitude in everyday life all the time, and everybody would know what that meant. And so it's, it, what, what it is as, as an item, as, a, as an actual actionable, actionable experience, it's recognizing with gratitude, to recognize with gratitude, to appreciate, to increase in value and worth. If you have gratitude for yourself, it allows you to increase in value and worth, and you feel better about yourself, you appreciate yourself. Which is, I feel for many people, this is the hardest of all, all of them actually. And what it does as a quality of heart is it destroys things like jealousy. You can't have appreciation for somebody else's success and be jealous of them at the same time. So externally, when somebody that we know, that we care about is doing well, having success or accomplishment or gain or any type of goodness in their life, when we can extend, oh, that's so great, I'm so happy for you, that feeling of I'm so happy for you, rather than, for sure never happens to me. How come them and not me, this attitude of mind? How come, how come they always, you know those people that always seem to just 
get it together all the time? How come them and not me? There's a sense of jealousy or envy. And this destroys that quality. It also um, is very helpful in disarming or undermining our tendency to just take for granted. And I know that in our world, in our culture, it's very, very hard to not take things for granted. You know, because again, we want the better. This is pretty good. I want, I'm always looking at what everybody else has as compared to what I have. And comparing. Comparing. Envy. Taking for granted. No gratitude, no appreciation, no sense of recognizing and feeling into that with a, a quality of, of gratitude. Appreciate. And this is one of the, like compassion, these two sometimes people can get confused or think that it's about compassion for others and appreciation for others. It's certainly both of those. But I think we really have to see it as, as the saying goes, charity starts at home. Is that we really have to have if, if I don't have compassion for my pain, then the compassion I have for your pain is going to be a little bit... Um, it's not going to be quite right. It's going to be a little bit delusional to some degree. The reason I like to teach these together as a set, as we'll do here this afternoon, is because um, once in a while, if you're being on retreat, sometimes, you know, I'll be having a really good day or the sits are going good. And I'm like, oh, I'm getting it together, you know, and feeling presence and ease. And I come in and it's like they're going to do compassion. I'm like, man, now i got to start thinking about my pain again. I spent all day <laughs> trying to overcome that shit. Now we have a compassion set. Or likewise, with appreciation, I can be having a really hard time or a difficult day, or really, really struggling, and I come in the hall, and they're like, we're going to cultivate appreciation. <laughs> like, no, we're not. <laughs> I'm going to go get a cup of tea. <laughs> right. So we kind of work on these together, because they're, they're, in the Abhidharma, they're, they're called the illimitables, meaning that there's, there's no limit to the amount of sorrow in the world, endless amounts of sorrow, endless amounts of joy. So we can cultivate an endless amount of compassion. There's no limit. That's why they're called the illimitables. There's no limit to the amount of compassion that one can cultivate. There's no limit to the amount of joy one can cultivate. And so they're both metta. They're just different kinds of metta. They're the metta transforms into a broader range. And so we could say that there's, a, there's really a whole lot of chitta in all of that, that that's really kind of, when we look at the responsive aspect of practice, how do we respond to particular conditions? Well, we don't usually respond to conditions, we react to conditions. We grab and we drop, we lean in, we push away, and kind of we spent the morning looking at that right, as a very basic strategy. And it's important to recognize when we're doing that, how we're doing that, and what the outcome of that is. But this is the other half of that, or more of the heart. To follow up on your question earlier, this is kind of where that comes in. So we kind of work at looking at both of those. So in a way of mental cultivation, or how do you, so how do you do that? Even if you're like, that sounds pretty good. How, does, how do we embark in that? 
And it's a little different than just sitting and bringing awareness to sounds and to basic features. And it's very lined up with what we do in Metta with the phrases. So we'll use very specific phrases. I'm sure many of you are used to these phrase, the phraseology of the practice. And I want to just maybe make a very pragmatic um, argument for why this works and why we do this. And it's really great because it, it, it really falls in line with the system of the Eightfold Path, which maybe I'll talk about more this evening as we kind of move out of the retreat experience. And of the Buddhist endeavor is to cultivate the Eightfold Path. That's sort of the, uh, the endeavor that's being asked. And it comes right out of the Third Noble Truth. So the Third Noble Truth, the Buddha speaks of, is that you can end suffering. Liberation is possible. You can liberate yourself from these kind of toxic, destructive states. And so you probably, whether you recognize it or not, you've liberated yourself from destructive states probably hundreds and hundreds of times since you've been here already. You know, little kind of these little liberation states. They maybe don't last very long, but they're there and they certainly happen. And then out of that liberated state arises this path, this opportunity. So out of, out of that liberated state arises this right or complete view. And so as we kind of arrive into a view or a perspective about things, we just have to consider, is compassion something that I want to view the world with? Is that something I want to add to my frame? Right. And is appreciation something I want to add to my frame? I want to see the world more through those lenses than I typically do. And that creates a, a complete, more appropriate way of seeing things that is going to be beneficial for you and the people you encounter. So that's just kind of easy to consider that possibility. And then we have to install that somewhere in the, in the software. So that goes into the intention. We have to bring kind of an intention, which is an activation or a movement in the mind where there's that inclining of the mind, the leaning of the tree in the right direction. Not leaning into greed, hatred, and delusion, not leaning into grabbing and dropping, not leaning into fixing and controlling, while actually leaning into caring and appreciating as being reliable, useful tools along the path. And so we have to we have to have that in our intentionality. And that's really what activates chitta as our intention, as what is our intention, which is a huge aspect of Dharma practice. This factor is one of the core factors of the Eightfold Path. It's right after right view. That's my intention. And then following right after that, we have right speech or appropriate speech. Is that if I take this view into my intentionality, now I have to put it into my speech. And so, I don't know about what you do in your mind, but to me, thinking is just me talking to myself in my head. I got a lot of not right speech going on in my thinking mind. Thinking mind, right speech. We don't think about that. We always think relationally with this whole right speech. I'm almost hesitant to say the word right speech because it just makes me cringe slightly. Sounds like, I'm like, here comes the rule book. Right? But really, to me, it's really about communicating authentically. And so if I look at the nature of my own mind and the nature of the thoughts, a lot of the thoughts I have about myself in the world are not compassionate, they're not appreciative, they're not kind or friendly. A lot of the thoughts I have about myself in the world and contexts that I find myself in are cynical and 
aggressive and violent and judgmental and all of that. And half of those I don't even mean. They just <laughs> they have a lot of momentum from many years of my early life still <laughs> hanging around. I cultivated a lot of those states for a lot of years and they still kind of hang around. So we, so we just, very pragmatically, we just say these phrases. That's all. Just say it. And it's not an affirmation or it's not a lot of this other stuff we might think. It's just a way of using language in a way that's skillful or a way that's useful. And it's very, very important to just kind of look at it from a lens of it being very pragmatic because if you notice, if you just watch your mind for a little while, what you talk about, what you say in your mind has tremendous emotional consequences. Right? So if, it, if the way we think about ourselves in our own mind can lead to destructive suffering experiences, then we could probably deduce that the opposite would be true. So if I kind of incline my mind and use internal language in a way that's more caring and more appreciative, then maybe those kinds of thoughts will begin to arise spontaneously rather than these cynical, judgmental thoughts. And it starts to get weird after you do this for years because then they kind of are co-arising all the time. You're like, Which, who do I trust here? That makes sense. That's why, that's why these phrases get used. There's a, there's a purpose for that. There's a... And then, of course, that phrase being repeated, may I care about myself, or I see you, I feel you, I care about you, if, that's get, if that gets said <clears throat> enough of times, then that will start to kind of spontaneously arise. Rather than, you're not good, why that person was always in pain, always just, you know. It's whatever you, whatever you feed, whatever you incline, whatever you cultivate, will eventually reap some sort of fruit. And so we can get the rotten stinky, I'm no good fruit, we get this other kind of fruit. And I think when we start to come into practice, we start to kind of, um, at first it can be really, really challenging because we see a lot of that, the negative side of what we've been doing in our minds and how we're uh, having all these resultant moments of like, oh man, I'm just getting beat up here by the past and my fear and my unresolved and my unknowing. So the transformation, actually, as I said last night, it just starts right now. It just starts in every moment. Transformation is like something that is available and possible in every single moment of experience. So you want to be careful you don't underestimate the value of having to do this kind of work and sitting and not thinking that, you know, it was a waste of time if it didn't feel good. Probably nothing could be further from the truth. It works regardless of whether it's pleasant or not. So what I'll do is I use three very basic phrases. So I'll just use the um, most basic way I practice this. There's a lot of new folks, and I find the most basic ones work the best anyway. So when we, we, when we incline towards compassion, which we'll do for the first half of this, it, it's just these three simple phrases. I, I see you, I feel you, I care about you. I see you, I feel you, I care about you. Which is the recognition, the access, and then the compassion. So we recognize, we try to access, incline, intend, and then that compassion movement is that I care about you, and that just becomes a repetition. And, this, and likewise with appreciation, um, we just, uh, I see you, I feel you, I appreciate you. 
I see you, I feel you, I appreciate you. Easy to remember, not too um, triggering. Some of these phrases can be problematic. I try to come up with ones or work with ones that are as disarming as possible. And so also before we do that, we'll, um, in both cases, to just kind of, you can get an idea how this might work reflectively, is that we'll start with somebody. So we'll start with an other person. So in compassion, we'll start by bringing somebody to mind that we know, that we care about, that's close to us, that's having maybe a hard time right now. And we'll just kind of extend compassion towards them to try to prime that pump. And then we'll turn it towards ourselves. And then likewise with appreciation, we'll bring somebody to mind that we know, that we care about, who's, who's easy for us to be happy for and offer them appreciation and then turn it towards ourselves. So before we get into that, which we'll do here now, if you do want to stand for just a moment and give your body a chance to um, be at ease and find a way to collect yourself and then coming back to a sitting posture when that feels right.